Hi, this is Doug Jones, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. I know! Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can be so easily! It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, and we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Welcome. Yet again, to another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only podcast to guarantee that if you listen, you'll hear stuff. This week is episode 455. My God, that's a magic number. I don't know why, it just kind of is. And we're going for a walk to the edge of the world. So let's see how that works out. We are still in pandemic show mode, and because of the need for social distancing and social interacting over the interwebs everybody's on and and it's a, quite frankly a pain in the ass so it's difficult to get a solid signal we're once again using our paired back cast we miss you kriana zombrarian and uh, java wherever you may be in the world wide web and at some point captain cam will get used to my taunts and then he's going to have to be removed as well uh, but until then in the Area 51 broadcast facility tonight, it's just Captain Cam, who has been keeping me uh, off the edge of the roof most of the day today for various reasons, uh, which don't need to be made public. But all I can say, Cam, is uh, thank you for the milk duds. They were very much necessary. Uh, and how you doing? I'm doing good. and uh, Seriously, don't. I keep telling you. When you want to do the whole Santa routine, it's not the edge of the roof, because usually the chimney's in the middle of the roof. Middle of the roof. Chimney dome. Not edge of roof. You could fall off, and then what are the reindeer going to do? <laughs> I got to tell you, man, that was not a reindeer. It's a whole other story. <laughs> well, that, 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 but it's close enough. I mean, good grief. Slap a set of sticks on the head of an, of an elephant. Who's going to know? Uh, I'll know. And, and okay. that's the scary part. Well, t tonight uh, we have an award-winning author, and I better stop screwing around about it because he'll get pissed off if I keep doing this. Uh, when, when you've got a guy on who's read more than written more than he's probably read more than sixty books, <laughs> but he's <laughs> he's he's written more than sixty books in uh, both science fiction uh, and nonfiction and fantasy and young adult and former newspaper reporter, uh, editor, uh, radio and television host. Uh, he's been interviewed by people much better than me uh, and uh, has his own podcast and for some reason actually wanted to be on this one. Uh, I said, yeah, okay. He's, he's won a ton of uh, top science fiction awards where he lives in Canada so they're Canadian awards. So they're actually, I couldn't do the, the conversion from 
Canadian to American awards, but they're really cool awards. And uh, I've just finished reading his latest book, which by the time this airs will have come out, but hasn't come out yet, which is much more important because it hasn't come out yet, but will by the time you hear this. Uh, Edward Willett, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, Ed. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Is that the stupidest introduction ever? Come on. Uh, well, you know, I don't usually rank them, but uh, maybe somewhere around number three. Pretty dumb. Come on. <laughs> thank you. Pretty dumb. Um, so it's, it's hard to describe all the different things that you do because, you know, I start looking through your biography and I'm going, you're like, you've done a lot of stuff, man. What can I tell you? Yeah, hey, well, once, once I decided to yeah, be self-employed, you know, it was like anything for a buck is basically what you're seeing there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in order to, to get the buck, you got to be good at it. <laughs> I mean, that, this is a hell of a time to play coy, man. You've got to be good at it. And let's be let's be serious. Um uh, you, you, your books are award-winning. Some of them. <laughs> you, many, many of them are have been up for and won awards, both fiction and nonfiction, over a wide, wide range of topics. Um, you, you, you're a former newspaper reporter. Uh, Let's talk about and 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 a lot of your stuff goes back to when you were a kid and just started writing when you were, were a kid in, in like grade school and grammar school. Yeah, I, well, I have two older brothers and they both read uh, science fiction and fantasy and that was what was around the house. So I quickly latched onto that as a kid. And and uh, so I wrote my first short story when I was 11 years old and it was called. Castra Glass, Hypership Test Pilot, from which you can tell that my course was set at a, at a very early age. And it, it was just something to do on a rainy afternoon. And my friend, I don't think, ever finished his story, but I finished mine. And my mom, who was a secretary, typed it up for me, and I took it to my uh, – I was 11, but I was in grade 7, 8. I was always a year ahead of everybody because I skipped a grade. And um, anyway, oh, he, you were that guy. Yeah, I learned to read in <laughs> kindergarten and I skipped grade one. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and my grade eight, uh, grade seven, grade eight, whichever he was, uh, English teacher critiqued it properly. He said, I don't understand why your aliens act like that. And I don't understand why your character does that. And I don't know. I've always credited that with giving a little ping that the next thing I wrote should be better. And I kept writing longer and longer stuff. I wrote three novels in high school and somewhere along in there, I decided that was what I wanted to do was put words on paper. It was either that or music or art or be a scientist. Uh, you know, so then I settled on writing. So you settled on writing, but your family has this kind of background in music as well. Yeah, my dad was a music teacher and choir director, and um, I sang in his in his choirs in high school. And then uh, I grew up in the Church of Christ, which has a strong uh, uh, musical 
um, heritage because it's all a cappella congregational singing. So I sang from the time I was long as I can remember. And as my voice changed, I worked through all four parts. So I sang soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. <laughs> I did all the harmony. I ended up as a bass, as you can probably tell. And uh, not I, a, I, I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. And I kept singing with uh, choirs. And um, and then um, when I got, oh, and uh, small a cappella groups and things like that. And then once I got a chance, I started doing musical theater. So I've done quite a bit of that. And then I did some opera. And uh, yeah, so music is another side of of what I did. And that did very much, I think, come from my, my family background. Can I tell you how interesting it was for me when I went on your website to listen to the music? I almost forgot. Yeah, how, there's, there's music on there. I almost forgot that. <laughs> how wonderful it was to travel back in the history of your family and listen to that acapella music and that 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 beautiful. Just just get a. Uh, a glimpse of that history it was just wonderful i i it gives you a glimpse that you never get uh, of of somebody's life yeah it was something i wanted once i i had those files and i wanted to put them up there because uh, there's lots of people that were touched especially by my dad as a choir director and a teacher and uh, it was his, him as a teacher that brought us to Canada. We, he was in Texas, and he got hired by Western Christian College, which is a small school here in Saskatchewan, and that's what brought us up here when I was eight years old. And, you know, hundreds of kids sang in his choirs, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a way for me. All that choral music, a lot of it is his. And then when I went to university, the same sort of thing. It's, it is a way to kind of – that's very much a part of, of my background, and it does – you wouldn't think it, but it does find its way into my science fiction and fantasy, too. <laughs> There's a lot of things um, that that are kind of in the the shadowy corners. <laughs> and, and I mean this in the most respectful way possible of, of your website, of your life, that show up in your work. And as... I, I spent probably much more time than I should have looking around your website today, listening to parts of your podcast, uh, researching you, uh, finding out things, looking looking in your your archive and stuff like that, just to be able to to, to you know. Uh, then there's the whole musical theater component of your life. <laughs> yeah, um, I, yeah. Where did I, that I doing come that. from? Um, you know, that came from when I was a high school student, but I wasn't hugely into musicals. We, we weren't doing musicals, and then we did one. Uh, there was another student that really wanted us to do a musical, and we did a production of Oliver, and I played Mr. Bumble. And uh, one boy, boy for sale. Of and course. I really, I really uh, loved it. 
is that was, where was, the ref is that where the reference in the book comes from? Is that because you 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 saying that well too well, and I know that comes that's that's a reference right in the book that you use that line. <laughs> yes, it is, Cameron. <laughs> the um, and I just loved it. And as I got more opportunity to do it, it wasn't really until I moved up to Regina, which is a bit, I grew up in Weyburn, which is about ten thousand people. And then when I got hired at the Saskatchewan Science Center as a communications officer, I came up here and there was a musical theater amateur group that I really became very involved with. And uh, for years, I was doing two or three musicals a year with them. And then over time, I I eventually got my equity card and I've done some professional work as well. So, uh, yeah, it's just given a choice. The thing I actually love most is probably performing musical theater. But, you know, if you're choosing between M practical uh career choices <laughs> you might as well choose writing <laughs> with musical theater on the side or sometimes it's musical theater with writing on the side i actually wrote one of my books while i was doing a production of beauty and the beast up in saskatoon and uh the the characters in uh Farrah insegura which are uh, which is one of the books that i wrote uh, for daw um i'll have the names of actors who were in that production <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And what I find most gratifying is, and it's meant not disrespectfully at all, is that there are authors that are one trick ponies. I'm a writer. That's what I do. That's what I am. And this is what I write, and that's what I write. And and they're locked, and and that's what they do. Um, as as I explored the world that is Edward Willard, I began to understand why world shapers has to be as complex as layered and as um, I'm, I'm searching for the right word here and I know I'm not going to find it <laughs> uh, as it is because a writer writes what he knows and a writer writes from his reference and you know way too damn much. <laughs> if that's fair. <laughs> well, I don't know. I I read. I read a lot. <laughs> and you get that feeling from because I mean, there's things like I just mentioned with that that one lyric. Your main character in your book, Shauna. You know, there's so many things in your life that I can draw parallels to with Shauna. Like there's. Like she's almost an extension of you. It's it's like this this it's it's like a projection. You've you've given her some of the best qualities in you, like the fact that you know musical theater, like you know science fiction, all of these pop culture references that just come out flow out of her without her even you know willing it. You know, and it just it makes for such a fun and interesting character. Yeah, she's a great joy to write. I mean. The book is largely first person, not entirely. Carl is third person when he comes up. And the adversary, who doesn't really appear much in this book, he's just in the prologue, is third person. 
but uh, Shauna is first person. And yeah, it's it's amazing. But she has exactly my sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How the hell did that? Uh, how hard is it from a purely technical standpoint to write a solid female character like that? I don't know. I I I I write quite a lot of female characters. I from when I was writing as I think. Well, let me think back. As a teenager, I didn't write a lot of female characters. I mostly wrote boy characters. Um. So when did I start doing more female characters? Pretty early on, when I started writing. And I don't know. But my as I used to say, girls are people too. So. <laughs> well, well, yes, I'll, I'll grant you that much. Um, but I mean, you know, Shauna Keys is let's let's back up for just one second. There are times when I'm sit- sitting and reading and as as a guy who who devours two to three books a week for my job. <laughs> Uh, because I love my job and I love to read. There are times when I will read and go, this character doesn't feel real, doesn't feel whole, doesn't feel to me as if I have that willing suspension of disbelief that this character could be sitting beside me talking to me the way they are and sometimes it's because it's a man writing a woman sometimes it's because it's a woman writing a man sometimes because it's any number of reasons but for what it for whatever reason many times uh and i don't know if it's just ethnocentrism on my part or whatever for a lot of reasons, men sometimes don't use female characters or don't make them work as well as you have done with Shauna Keys. Well, and I'm good to she, hear. <laughs> it's she's a really wonderful character, and and as as I okay. For the listener, this is book three of what is to this point a trilogy. And for me, not having read books one and two before I jumped into book three was a uh, was a mistake on my part, loudly. And it took me a long time to understand the flow and understand uh, the concept. My mistake. I would not suggest anybody do that, but I did. What helped me gain almost instantaneous comfort in this book was your work with these characters but specifically her. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, so she's how, she's one of my favorite ones to write that I've ha- ever had. I think. <laughs> how, how did you how how'd you find her? Um, this this series has an interesting background. It was originally going to be a fantasy. Uh, she's always been a potter, mainly because of the world shaping pun, really shaping mm-hmm. worlds. Uh, but originally it was a fantasy. She was in like a medieval village. It was this long valley. Uh, something came came over the top of the valley and attacked, and then she had to flee. And these other worlds opened up from um, like uh, portals that were just in the side of this valley, a bit like maybe Riverworld. Uh, I think remember Riverworld from. Wow, that goes friends. that there there there's something that a lot of people have never understood or or read. I'm old. <laughs> yeah, join the club. Philip Jose Farmer is a wonderful. Uh, so that all changed somewhere along the way. And I think it's a good thing it did, because in the original version, she was a small medieval town potter and she had no reference for any of these worlds. I don't think it would have worked. So by at some point, and I don't even know when um, that all switched and I decided she worked better as a woman from what appears to be our world, uh, her world, her shaped world that she's in in the first book is sort of like our world, but not quite. Lacrosse is the big professional sport, for example, in her world. And there's colonies on the moon. And The Da Vinci Code was a musical starring Hugh Jackman on Broadway. Uh, one of my favorite musical theater jokes. <laughs> and why should we? I, I, I completely think that should be a thing. We the line that happened, Dub. The line was that Hugh Jackman did his best in the title role, but he wasn't able to save the script. But <laughs> anyway. Um, so by giving her all those pop culture things that I could do and her world, she left our world 10 years ago. So I tried to make sure that every reference she made was at least 10 years old after that things diverged. Um, so it was, it was just, I knew she was a potter. I wanted her to have that kind of, uh, slightly sarcastic sensibility. Uh, and yeah, she's basically, she's basically my sense of humor put into a 27 year old potter from Montana. (laughs) Explain if you can, and I know this is asking a lot, so I will simply just ask a lot. Explain what we're doing in this book. What, what the book, what the series is about. Okay. Um, The series is called World Shapers. It's set in a labyrinth of shaped worlds. This is like an extra dimensional labyrinth of of shaped worlds. Each of these worlds is shaped by somebody from our world who had the ability to shape them and was placed into this labyrinth by the mysterious Agrair who ran a school in our world for shapers. And when they graduated, she said, here, here's a world. Do whatever you want. Um, Somebody attacked her and uh, she had to flee into the labyrinth herself. Um, In the first book, Shauna does not know that she shaped the world she's in until something really terrible happens. Her best friend is killed in what seems to be a terrorist attack. And she says, this isn't happening. This can't be happening. And just like that, it isn't happening and it didn't happen. Um, and not, But nobody remembers her friend who she saw killed. Nobody remembers that she ever existed. 
And then the mysterious stranger shows up, Carl Yatzer, and uh, he says, hey, you shaped this world. And Shauna says, I don't remember that. And he said, well, you should. <laughs> oh, and by the way, you have to run away now because that guy that attacked you and he touched you, he's stolen your knowledge of this world and now he's taking it over. So in the first book, they have to run across her world, which is a, basically a long chase sequence across a version of our world, the Northwest U.S., and they end up out in the ocean and find themselves on an island where they find the portal, open the portal to the second world. The second book was, oh, and the, so the goal is that uh, because of the power she showed in resetting time, Carl says, you know, I think you have the power to gather the knowledge of these shapers from other worlds. And if we can get all that to agrarian, she can save the labyrinth from the adversary. So, okay. Uh, second one, they end up in a world that is shaped by somebody who really loved Jules Verne. So it's called Master of the World, and it's all Jules Verne references. So there's mysterious islands and uh, strange submarines and weird flying machines and all that kind of thing. Um, most For most of that book, Shauna's on her own. She rather carelessly misplaces Carl at the end of the first book. <laughs> Not really his fault. <laughs> he just doesn't come through the portal when she goes through it. Um they're re reunited at the end of that, and then book three, the moonlit world, they've entered a brand new world, uh, and again, the goal is to find the shaper and to, to gather the knowledge of the making of this world and then get it on to the next world, eventually getting to uh, Agrair. Um, and this world, the moonlit world, I like to call uh, werewolves and vampires and peasants, oh my, because that's <laughs> the kind of world that it is. <laughs> Follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> It's interesting because even in this book, she misplaces Carl. I'm beginning to feel because I felt bad for Carl, Carl in this book because he got misplaced at the very beginning. Now I'm going to have to go back and read your other one, the Jules Verne's one, just to see him get misplaced once again. He's hardly in that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's partly because Sean is finding her way and learning her way. And it's more interesting for her to learn things on her own than to have Carl there all the time to explain things to her. Although as this one, I, I made the joke at the start of it that he doesn't have a clue what's going on in this world. So as an all seeing guy, he's, he turns out to be a bit of a, of a dud in this particular instance. I love the number of times that she turns to him and says, why? And he goes, I don't know. And she just gets more and more frustrated. <laughs> it's just like you said, she's going, but you're supposed to know everything. That was the point why I needed you in the last world. And I have you here. You're supposed to answer all my questions. He says, I don't know. It's just watching her, just the, that little vein on her head, just little bulge and pulse. <laughs> and, a, I, uh, and the big plot point in this one is that she becomes more powerful in a way uh, and becomes more the leader instead of having Carl as kind of the person that's going to be guiding her. She kind of, by the end of this book, is kind of in charge and a little bit scary. So <laughs> There, there yeah. is a, definitely an inner strength uh, that grows within her as, as this moves along uh where she begins to get a greater understanding of what her capacity is there's a lot of ethical questions that come to mind if you're dealing like as authors we create worlds and we create characters that live in those worlds and then we do terrible things to those characters and of course they're nothing <laughs> they're nothing but words on the page and you know shadows in the minds of the reader but if those things became physical and your characters were flesh and blood uh well, well then where how would that change the ethical considerations are they real people you still made them up 
Uh, none of the people in this world are any older than the world is, whatever they're, they may think they are. But uh, like in Shauna's world, nobody was really more than 10 years old. They hadn't existed for more than 10 years. They're, they're copies true. of people in the first world. So is it, and in the second, and master of the world, the, the shaper there is basically said, yeah, so I, I, I play war games with them. That's what he does in his world. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that sort of stuff that goes back and forth and I just have fun hashing it out and, and uh, Sean and Carl have kind of different opinions on it. And, uh, there are, there are times in the book when discussions came up out of the blue. There's one early on where I suddenly found myself discussing the, the nature of time and, and if God is real and what would creation mean <laughs> and all that sort of thing. And I, that was, I didn't have that in an outline or anything. It just came up from the two characters as they were having lunch. <laughs> I'm telling you, the, there's one point where it pops up and, and here's a quote that I pulled out. If God created the universe with the appearance of being billions of years old, how was that any different from it actually being billions of years old ago and aging through all that time, God was presumably outside time, like space. It was just another bit of clay he spun on his potter's wheel to make the universe. And I sat there and I stared at that for like five minutes and I went, okay, <laughs> what have you just done to me? <laughs> this is from years and years of going to church. <laughs> <laughs> I went three times a, three times a week as a kid, so you know I got a lot of Bible and a lot of discussion. <laughs> over I that guess time. so. Holy crapolis! Wow. So I would like to double back to that uh, vampires and werewolves and peasants. Oh my line. <laughs> <laughs> Which is in the book in a version. There's a version of it in the book. I used it. <laughs> hmm. I'm gonna have to go back and look that up, but that'll be for later. I won't do it while we're on the air. Um, <laughs> The, so your werewolves and your vampires, you know, they're very interesting. I mean, we have we have Queen Patricia of the uh, we vampires and Queen Stephanie of the werewolves, and each one leads leads their own little group, you know, in in different in different parts of this world you've created or technic. Yes, this world you've created, and but each one of them is different. So when you you're dealing with werewolves and vampires, everybody has their own images of them from. Bram Stoker to ancient lore about vampires from all over the earth to Shudder Twilight. <laughs> um, so when I read this, it was interesting how much you took from traditional lore and how much you took from movie and book based lore, but you also gave it your own twist. You didn't you didn't feel you had to be married to any of that 100 percent. One of the comments I wrote down as I was taking notes, I said, you're vampires. You have vampires that do drink wine and apparently have babies, if I read that correctly. <laughs> yes, although I kind of skip over exactly how that might work. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I did. I think I remember that the, the, the part that I remember that was Shauna asking that exact same question is going, how does that work? And I'm doing the same thing. How does that work? So when you created your vampires and your werewolves, you've just created a whole race two whole races with this wonderful background to them. How did you make the decisions of what to keep from what already exists in the lore, what to leave out in the ideas like your vampires having babies that you just built from whole cloth? Um, 
I took what I liked and left out stuff I didn't. And some stuff I left, <laughs> I left out just to bother Shauna because she expects things to be something and, you know, they're not. Um, as far as the babies thing, that was the only way the world would work. That was the only way to have this this society set up. And I figured that the shaper, uh, whoever shaped the world, did not want to very carefully trying not to give away a big plot point there. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> did not want to, uh, you know, wanted to have a, a world that would self-sustain. Uh, and for that to happen, um, you had to have some way for the vampires to reproduce and you would run out of peasants if, <laughs> if they could only make vampires by eating the peasants. And of course, True. the whole premise of the world is that it was set up to be peaceful and they have this, this pact, which was, you know... <laughs> When the Abbot Costello set up his pact, uh, <laughs> don't forget, his, don't forget his middle name, Abbot yes. Nathan Costello. Yes, Abbot in Costello met the werewolves <laughs> and the vampires and set up this pact to keep the world. Uh, that's my favorite joke, I have to admit. That uh, was mine too. Peaceful. So that, a lot of that was just trying to think how would how could this actually be self-sustaining under those circumstances. And also the, the great thing is that because this world was shaped by somebody who might be was somebody who was steeped, not just in traditional lore, but in all the books and movies and everything. Some not the more recent ones, because it's been that world was shaped a little longer ago. Uh, that's why there's no sparkling vampires. Um, Thank you. <laughs> although you will note that it's Queen Stephanie. <laughs> Yes, I did. Yes. I did notice that, and I was gonna add. That was gonna be my next question. Was was there some of the names? I wasn't gonna say who, but was some of the names picked for for specific reasons? So that answers my question. Queen <laughs> Queen Stephanie and Queen Patricia were very deliberately chosen with those first names. Yes. All right. <laughs> so yeah, it was just a matter of what the story needed to work. I thought. All right. And one of the other things I noticed is. And again, I want to go back. I especially want to just go back because when I got this one and I was reading up on the series and I looked at it because I, I got this, is the one I did pick up. I looked back and I said, there's a second book and it's set in Jules Verne, a Jules Verne sort of steampunk-esque world. I'm going, oh, man, when I get some free time in my reading uh, you know, time, I'm going to go back and, and read that one because that one really interests me. You know, but this one was cool. There's also a hint that at the in the first book, like at the very beginning, um, Carl came from a world that they they were it was completely set in Shakespearean time, and his complaint was he didn't like having to speak an iambic pentameter, which I <laughs> love that line. So yeah. So, uh, I, I deliberately set that one as one he'd already been in because I don't want to write a whole book and try to write a whole book in Shakespeare. <laughs> smart move. Very yeah, smart. See, see, with age comes wisdom, my friend. With age yes. comes wisdom. So I think it kind of gives me. So you know, how do you pick? You know, because you've 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 chosen these in, very interesting, very diverse, and very deep worlds. Like Shakespeare's a very deep world. But yeah, a pain in the butt if you got to write it in iambic pentameter. But Jules Verne's that sort of steampunk-esque world, supernatural world of vampires and werewolves has a lot you could be writing about. So it's how do you how do you you, you decide what what you're going to pick, and uh, any hints on what you're going to do next? Those three were those two really. I mean, the first one I always would always going to be in a version of our world. Uh, right. The Jules Verne one, I've just always had a. I remember reading The Mysterious Island when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite adventure books. I actually read that before I read uh, 
uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I did eventually read that too, of course. And, you know, a couple other Jules Verne. Not not everything he wrote, because he wrote quite a lot of stuff that I'd never even heard of until I started doing the research. Um, and then um, the Vampire and Werewolf one, I always had that one in the back of my mind. Um, and especially there's a character that that joins the Carl and... and um, What's her name? Shauna. <laughs> uh, and uh, I always had that, too, that that would be adding a third uh, person to this uh, to this. Uh, as for the next one, well, uh, if um, I have it planned out, it would be set in a film noir world. Um, there's a little hint of that at the end of the book. Uh, so I'm thinking I have it all figured out with gangsters and, you know, Humphrey Bogart type Maltese Falcon kind of a world. It might even be black and white literally because I can do whatever I want. <laughs> do it, do it, please do it. Do play. If you do the, if you do the noir, do it, do it black and white. And that's what the, that's what that little thing at the end meant. Okay. Thank uh -huh. you. That, that, that answers my question. Another question. All right. You know, when you, when you spend half an hour talking to a gentleman whose background is as diverse as yours is, you can go anywhere from books he's written about Jimi Hendrix <laughs> to adult fantasy fiction, science fiction about the Maltese Falcon coming up sure <laughs> why not and will it it has been an absolute joy to talk to you tonight uh to meet you we've never met i i i hope someday we get a chance to sit down you know and have a cup of coffee and and talk about stuff I want to know why Patricia can be called Trisha and Stephanie can't be called Steph. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Thanks for coming on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, sir. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I had a great time. You know, not many people say that, but from <laughs> you, I'll take that as a compliment. Remember, I'm an actor. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of GraniteCon. Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, my Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce we have. We love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry, you can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp and a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, 
Terry and Jeannie shared pain as lessons, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime. Good night, everybody. This is my brother Yako.